Amen. All right. Okay, so if you guys have your Bibles, we are back in 1 Corinthians. Um, I had originally planned on preaching uh, chapter 4, verses 1 to 13, but I had realized after, like, after reaching verse 5, I was already at, like, my word count normally. So that's why it's only up to verse 5. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Uh, but if you guys are uh, there, I will read for us 1 Corinthians chapter 4. All right, verse uh, chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. This is the word of the Lord. He says, This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they may be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. How do you know uh, that something is the real deal? Um, a few years ago, uh, actually many, many years ago, um, my family and I were in Hong Kong. And I love Hong Kong because my family is from there and uh, we love, uh, well, I haven't gone back in a while, actually. Uh, but one of the reasons why I love visiting Hong Kong is because of my relatives. And my, in particular, my uncle uh, loves giving gifts. He loves giving gifts to all of us. But this particular trip that um, I had visited uh, with my family, he actually gave me a very, very heavy watch. Um, I might have actually even shared this illustration with you guys before. Um, but he has shared with me a, a very expensive watch, uh, well, at least what I thought was expensive. And so when I looked at it, I was like, dude, this is like like stainless steel. It's like super heavy. The glass was like thick. Um, the, the, the turn dial had like a sapphire attached to it. And I was like, dude, this is like expensive. And so, um, not in his face, but like when I went back to my apartment or to, uh, to my grandma's place, uh, who lived there, um, I had looked up what this watch was. It was a, it was a Cartier watch. And if you don't know what Cartier is, it's like, I don't know. It's like, it's pretty, it's pretty close to the Rolls Royce of watches. The only thing closest to it is a Rolex and it was not a Rolex. Um, and I looked it up and I was like, this watch was $10,000. And I was like, I, I can't. So I, so the next day I, I go back to my, my uncle's place and I was like, I can't keep this. This is like, this is a, a watch worth $10,000. And then he just looks at me and he was like, Eric, why would you, why would you think that I would give you a $10,000 watch? And I was like, Oh. I guess you're right. <laughs> and so, so he, obviously it was, it was a fake and, you know, it doesn't surprise me because, you know, it's made in China. Um, <laughs> go figure. Uh, I can say this because I'm Chinese. Okay. So, um, but, <laughs> <I know. laughs> but it was fake. Okay. It was fake. It, I will say it was correlative, not causative. Okay. It was correlative that it was made in China that it was also fake. Um, but, um, it was from all appearances, it looked real. Like it, it, it had the appearance of, uh, a, a real authentic watch. It felt real. It felt heavy. Um, later, I found out that the the sapphire that was on that turned out just broke off. So I was like, okay, that's definitely fake. And so how do you know that something is the real deal? How do you know that something is the real deal? It's possible for something like a watch to be genuine from far away, but from a close encounter, from a close appearance, to be found lacking integrity and authenticity. How do you know that something is the real deal? You can determine the authenticity of something by its characteristics. 
If someone was given a sneak peek preview into how you lived your life and see how you lived in the day-to-day, minute-to-minute, what would they conclude about your life? If If your friends evaluated your life, would they say that you are a person of integrity? And if, you're, if you have friends that don't care whether you have integrity, it's time for you to drop those friends and to find wiser friends. What about your parents? Would they think that you are trustworthy? How about the people in your life who depend on you? Would they say that you are dependable? How about your teachers? Would they think that you are a person whose work ethic is blameless? What about God? Would God think that your life is a life of integrity? If your life were to be scrutinized in the same way a watchmaker scrutinizes the integrity of a watch, would your character hold up? How can you tell if you are the real deal? By the character of your life. By the character of your life. What you think about, what you invest your time in doing, what you talk about with your friends, by how you live your life, you will determine to others whether your life is worth listening to or worth any salt at all. What backed up the words that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church was a life of integrity. What, what made his message compelling or credible? When, when Paul writes multiple letters to the, the churches all over Asia Minor, what made, what gave weight to his words? Because it's one thing to write something very powerful, powerful. It's another to actually demonstrate it. Paul backed up his words with his character, with his life. And so as we turn back to 1 Corinthians, we're nearing the end of the first section of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Paul is almost done. I know you guys are dreading when we'll finish, or you guys just can't wait, but Paul's almost done addressing divisions in the church. And just so you know, as a preacher of God's word, I am bound to preach what God wants me to preach, okay? So it wasn't exact, well, some of it was my fault, but when a preacher is called to preach God's word. He goes through sequentially every passage, which means that there are certain passages I just can't ignore. So when the Apostle Paul writes for four chapters on divisions, guess what is what was not my choice to, okay? And I trust that by the Spirit of God, that through this kind of repetition, and by the way, repetition, uh, or you, there, there's no formation without repetition, okay? Like, I think that's something that you guys learn in school. Like, repetition is the key to learning. Uh, anyway, the point is that there's no formation without repetition. And so I trust that by the Spirit of God, this repetition will shape and form you to be the kind of people who resist the temptation to appeal to the world's standards of success or beauty or power. And so as we, as we finish off this first section of Paul's letter, the Apostle Paul is going to show us why he is someone worth listening to. And why he is also someone worth imitating and following. And so the key idea for uh, tonight's message is that a people centered on Messiah are a people of integrity. A people of integrity. And a people of integrity are, well, just tonight, are marked by one characteristic. There will be two more in the coming messages. But the first, and I guess the only point, is that a people of integrity are marked by their fidelity to one audience. A people of integrity are marked by their fidelity to one single audience. Now take a look at verse 1 again. This is how one should regard us, as servants 
of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, as I mentioned last week, there was a list of criteria that the Corinthians were judging their church leaders by. And this list included, are they charming? Are they smart? Are they uh, eloquent? Are they charismatic? Are they knowledgeable? And, and the central concern from last week's message was that the Corinthians were simply content looking at the surface and not on the heart. And so in verse 1, the Apostle Paul is challenging the Corinthians to reconsider this criteria. And first he says that the, 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 the appropriate way to evaluate God's leaders is servanthood and stewardship. Servanthood and stewardship. Now, the word for servant here isn't the same word that Paul normally uses for the word servants. Normally, when the New Testament authors use the word servant, they usually use the word diakonos. But here, in this passage, Paul uses a more generic word for servant that was reserved for servants who maintained the estate of someone's house. Many of you know this about me by now because I've used this again countless times in other sermons. But as many of you know, I used to live in Pastor David's backyard. Um, and occasionally when, when David and Jamie would, uh, you know, and their, and their family, when they would uh, go on trips or whatever, they would entrust me to take care of their home. And as a steward, temporary steward of their house when they left, uh, they had entrusted that I would not, you know, invite people over to party or play with fire, fireworks uh, or do anything ridiculous. He just expected that I would take care of his home. Now, this is a, in some ways, a limited understanding of what this kind of steward was meant to do. The steward that the Apostle Paul is talking about in this passage doesn't really fully capture the full responsibility of the servant and steward. If you were a master in the first century, your household didn't just include your actual house. It included uh, the whole property. It included your business ventures. It included your investments. It included your crops. It included uh, your business. It included your money, your field, your family, your children, and the rest of the household servants. It included everything. And it was also not uncommon for masters to go on a journey for one year, two years, even three years at a time because of the fact that maybe because there were business trips all the way up in Rome. And so because of the fact that they lacked modern transportation and modern technology, there's no way for them to ever communicate as instantaneously as we could today. So if a master went on a business trip, who was going to take care of his estate and his family? And what kind of person, what kind of person could he entrust that to? The master would have entrusted his entire estate to the most senior and most responsible steward, which is why the requirement of stewards is that they're to be faithful. Faithful. Take a look at verse 2. Moreover, it is required of servants, uh, stewards rather, that they be found faithful. Now let's think about this analogy just for a second. Imagine that you will be gone for a couple years at a time. You're going to need someone who will not squander your money or ruin your house. You're going to want someone who is skillful with managing your entire estate. You're going to need someone who's not going to flake and walk away when it's difficult to. You're going to need someone who was honest and truth-telling with the kind of business transactions that they were doing. You would want someone who would do all that you had asked them to do. You would need someone who was faithful and trustworthy. You know, at, at Lighthouse, we talk a lot about stewardship and, and, uh, and faithfulness. And I can tease out all the implications of faithfulness and stewardship. And I was actually planning on doing that tonight. But I'm going to spare you guys uh, because we just be here all night. But I think sometimes for the sake of being thorough and exhaustive, 
We overcomplicate what doesn't have to be. In this verse, there is a certain kind of simplicity that the Apostle Paul is calling for here. The word for faithful is the word that we use for faith, pistos. American Christianity, I think, focuses maybe a bit too much on faith as if faith is our final assurance before God. And don't get me wrong, faith is obviously important. It's one of the reasons why the Reformation happened. But faith is only important insofar as the object of your faith and what your faith trusts and places its hope in. What made Paul faithful? What made Paul faithful? Faith is not about how you or how much of it you have, but whom your faith is in. Sometimes we pursue faith in and of itself and not the object of our faith. Do we not? So what made Paul faithful? What made Paul want to be excellent in all that he did in his ministry to the Corinthians and all the other churches that he ministered to? Paul didn't pursue faithfulness or excellence in and of of themselves. Paul was faithful and excellent in all that he did and wanted to be found faithful because he simply loved God and wanted to please his master. That is the goal of all faithfulness. And I think sometimes we lose sight of this goal, that in the name of faithfulness, that we lose sight of the object of our faithfulness. It isn't just because we need to get things done or because we want to have a specific reputation for excellence. It's because we love God. And I think sometimes we just lose sight of that. That we just pursue excellence and faithfulness just because it's good to or because our church talks about it a lot. But we lose sight of the fact that faithfulness, the whole object, the whole point of faithfulness is to please the master. It's the reason why in Second Corinthians, Paul was so fearful. Now, the Apostle Paul was not normally a fearful individual. He was not a man of many fears, but there was one thing that he feared. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul reveals his kryptonite. He says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. The epitome of faithfulness is a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus. You lose sight of that, you don't have faithfulness. You just have some way of just tooting your own horn. How you pursue faithfulness and excellence flows from this source, a pure and sincere devotion to the Messiah. An audience of one. And so what does this faithfulness look like? What what specifically does this faithfulness look like? Well, fidelity, faithfulness to an audience of one means that we look to no one else, not even ourselves. We look to no one else, not even ourselves. Now, we have to remember that the Corinthians were second-guessing Paul's integrity and questioning his authority. And just because the Apostle Paul was an apostle didn't mean that he was a robot. The Apostle Paul was a real human being with real emotions and feelings. But take a look at what he says in verse 3 in light of the criticism that he's receiving from the Corinthians. But with me, verse 3, he says, But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. What the Apostle Paul is pretty much saying is, I don't care what you guys think about me or your judgment of me. In fact, one commentator writes, Paul brushes aside their criticism. Indeed, the interrogation of any human court is of no consequence to him. And I think at this point, the Apostle Paul is touching a nerve for all of us here. 
You can ignore it. You can pretend that it's not a problem. You can say that you're recovering from it. You can even say that you're completely fine by it. But the fact of the matter is, is that all of us, in some ways, are ruled by the opinions and approval of other people. Pastors and leaders, no less. You know, there's a character in Parks and Rec named uh, named Ann Perkins, um, who adopted the personality of all her boyfriends that she had dated. And so her first boyfriend, at least in the show... Uh, was a guy named Andy Dwyer. You guys might know him as Star Lord. He is Chris Pratt. Um, but he, uh, but you know, if, if you guys ever seen the show, Andy Dwyer is just this idiot. Okay, he's a, he's, a, he's an adorable idiot, but he's an idiot nonetheless. And so, because she loves him so much and likes him uh, and wants to remain in his love, uh, she adopts his personality. Uh, another boyfriend that she ends up dating is uh, is unironically, or I guess ironically, Chris. Um, or otherwise known as Rublo. Um, but uh, Chris is a complete health nut. And in order for Anne to secure his affections, uh, she also likewise is a health nut as well. Uh, she is like into like essential oils. Uh, she's into all these crazy things. Um, why? Because she wanted her boyfriends to like her. Now for some of us, we're overt like Anne. Okay? In order to gain the acceptance of others, you will dress the same way as those you seek to win acceptance of. Maybe we'll use the same eyeliner. Maybe we'll listen to the same music. Uh, maybe we'll try to talk the same. Maybe for some of us, we're more covert in our people-pleasing. Maybe we'll compromise our values to fit in. Maybe, we'll, maybe some of us are afraid of telling people that we are Christians because we fear rejection and shame. Maybe some of us are afraid of what people think of us, so we send others to do our bidding. You know, like maybe you'll send your friends to figure out if this other person likes you or not, and uh, if they don't, then the other person doesn't know. The Apostle Paul says that it is a small thing that he is judged by any human court. But so many of you willingly put yourselves into the theater of approval or disapproval, waiting to be affirmed or critiqued on social media. Megan, Nicole, and I um, were just talking about how almost all you guys, and I say almost because you'll, you'll know why, but how almost all of you guys have completely bypassed the awkward phase of adolescence. Like, there's no awkward phase for any of you guys anymore because you're just, you know, learning whether consciously or unconsciously how to dress or how to act from people that you don't even know. Living in the digital age means that we are constantly putting ourselves in the judgment and critique of others. I don't know if you guys are aware of this or not. For some of us, the approval of others is what will actually get us up in the morning. What others think of us is often what will drive us toward narcissism. You thought selfies were just harmless? Think again. How others approve our, or, or our fear of their disapproval of us is what will often drive us to not say a thing in class or to do well. If you think about it some more, you'll find that the approval and praise of others is often what will lead people to work themselves to exhaustion, to cheat on tests, to use illegal drugs, and is often what will lead people to anorexia, depression, and suicide. The movie Chairs of Fire um, I don't know, I don't know, guys, I don't know if you guys have heard of it, but it's an Academy Award, it's like a long time ago, um, is an Academy Award winning movie based on the real events and lives of two athletes competing in the 1924 Olympics. And, uh, one of the, uh, one of the runners, one of the athletes is more well known, uh, Eric Liddell, a Christian born to Scottish missionaries in China. And the, the lesser known is Harold Abrahams. And the movie tells a story of these two runners, picked by the UK to represent the nation in the Olympics. 
Now, in the, in the film, we find out that Harold makes the 200-meter final, but he finishes last. But, however, he has one last shot to prove himself in the 100-meter. And in one of the scenes before the race, he, he says to one of his teammates, he says, contentment. I'm 24, and I've never known it. I'm forever in pursuit, and yet I don't know what it is I'm chasing. And now in one hour's time, I will be out there again and raise my eyes to the crowd and look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? By now, as the watcher, you realize that Harold isn't just talking about the race or the Olympics. He's talking about his life, the totality of his life. All of the friendships that he could have had, all of the time that he could have had, has been sacrificed for this one 15-second moment before, before the world arena of fans, critics, and judges. What if he loses? Will it all be a waste? But then he says something surprising. He says to his teammate, I've known the fear of losing, but now I'm too frightened to win. You see, it isn't the fear of losing that scares Harold so much as it is the fear of winning. Why? Because what if Harold wins and it doesn't justify his entire existence? What if that gold medal doesn't satisfy all that time that he had spent working on that one 100-meter race? What if everything that you've ever gotten, or what if, you, what if you've gotten everything that you've ever wanted, the, the, the praise of others, the, the acceptance, everything, but it's, but it's not enough? What if... What you are chasing is just a dead end that leads to nowhere. Can it justify your existence? Many love the, the benefits of approval, acceptance, and, and praise of others. It's the reason why we crave it. But very few recognize the perils of approval, acceptance, and praise of others. Because if you live for the approval and praise of others, what you must reckon with is its opposite. If you live for the approval and praise of others, then you will also die by their criticism, by their blame and disapproval of you. It's exactly what Harvey Dent says in The Dark Knight. He says, you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. So what's the solution? I think many of us think that the solution to people-pleasing or the fear of man is to just drown out the voices and to just march to the beat of your own drum. Forget what others say. The only opinion that matters is your, is your own. But that also won't work either. Because the fact of the matter is that even if you set your own standards, you will inevitably fail them. Like how many of you have kept the re- resolutions that you made in the beginning of the year? How many of you guys? Really? Okay, pretty good. All right. Maybe because you said the bar low. Just kidding. Um, so, so is the solution to set the bar low. Do you really be want to known as the person who sets low standards for himself or herself? If the Apostle Paul does not get his approval rating from the Corinthians or from himself, where does he get it from? Take a look at the last half of verses 3 to 4. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself. In other words, his conscience is clear as far as he is concerned. But I am not thereby acquitted. Not even a clear conscience will acquit him. Why? Because it is the Lord who judges me. The the Apostle Paul gets his approval rating from God. 
Paul does not get approval from others. He doesn't even get it from himself. His eyes are fixed on God, the object of his faith. You know, it's interesting here. The word that the Apostle Paul uses for acquit is a word that is often used in a courtroom. The word that he uses is the word dikaio. It's the same word that we use for justify or to receive a verdict. And so what Paul is saying is, Paul may receive, I may receive a verdict from the Corinthians that they don't like me or that I'm lame, but that doesn't matter to him. Paul may even receive a verdict from himself. He can appeal to his spiritual resume. He's an, an apostle after all, but what he thinks about himself doesn't even matter to him. Why? Because his verdict is from God. His verdict is from God. In every Instagram feed, in every friendship, in every classroom, on every test, in every stadium, in every gym, in every home, we are put on trial every single day, evaluated by all the different people in those spheres of our lives. Will I do well? Will I not do so well? Maybe for some of you, you are desperate to find a favorable verdict of acceptance from others. Maybe for some others, others of you, you will find it in yourself. But in Christianity, the ultimate verdict that you need is the verdict that is received and not achieved. The ultimate verdict that you need is the verdict that you receive and not achieved. I mean, let's think about it for a second. There is a verdict that God casts on every single human individual that has ever lived and will ever live. Every single human being deserves a guilty verdict, a verdict of death in hell. Why? Well, if you think about it for a second, in our people-pleasing, what we're doing is we're spitting in the face of God. It's what the apostle, or it's what the, the prophet Jeremiah says when he says that God's people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And here's the second evil. They have hewed out broken cisterns for themselves that will not last. That can hold no water. When God calls us to be satisfied in him, to come to the fullness of our joy in him, we have spat in his face and have said that his approval was not enough for us. Isn't that the reason why we look for approval in others or in ourselves? We are saying that God is not enough. You see, people-pleasing isn't merely a mental health problem. It's not, in fact. Nor is it a normal part of high school socializing. You can, you can justify it and rationalize it as that. But people-pleasing is none other than high-handed idolatry and sin against God. Because we have worshipped the creation over the creator. What was supposed to have been a good gift from God, the approval of others, we have turned into something that we crave and idolize. We have turned into a terrible master and a terrible idol that has turned your heart away from God and has turned you toward waters that don't even satisfy. And this requires a verdict of death. But as we know, God does the unthinkable. As, as we rebel, he pursues. As we idolize, he incarnates himself. As you move away from him, he moves toward you and he goes to the cross for you. In Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 9, Paul writes, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us 
in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified, there we go, there it is, dikaio. Since therefore we have been justified by God, by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. On the cross, God's verdict of us falls on Jesus. And on the cross, God's verdict of Jesus falls on us. When you act like he doesn't exist, he forgives you. When you think that he isn't good, he patiently shows you goodness until you see that he is good. What is the verdict for those who believe and trust in Jesus? You are declared something. And it's something that others can offer you. It is something that you can't offer in and of yourself. You are declared by God, if you believe in Jesus, righteous. You are declared righteous. In other words, you have all the approval that you will ever need from God himself. The one in whom you have sullied his name. You are loved in the Messiah. And so what Paul is calling for us to do here is to come to the end of yourself and prove yourself no more. Jesus has died for me. That is my verdict. That is my righteousness. That is my acquittal. That is my hope and peace. And that is all I need. And what that means is that there's no amount of good that you can do to add on to that verdict. And there's nothing bad that you can do to take that away. Isn't it so fickle the way in which we seek the approval of others? Isn't it how fickle that one day one person likes you, another day they don't? For the Apostle Paul, he just couldn't get over the love of the Messiah for him. It's the reason why he says in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And so my question for you is, is that approval enough for you? Or do you need to seek it from another person, from yourself? But there is no middle ground. There is no middle ground. You can either chase after the approval of others and being ruled by their praise, hoping that what they think of you will prop up your life only to find that it will not. Or you can follow Jesus into a life of freedom and joy. To have the only approval that matters in this life and in the next. To live in faithfulness out of what God has already done of you and thinks of you in Jesus. Where the value of your life is no longer defined by what you do or what others think of you or who your friends are, but by what God and Messiah has done for you on the cross. A sincere and pure devotion to Messiah Simple faithfulness to Messiah looks to no other, not even ourselves. Secondly, secondly, we are not God. We are not God. Fidelity to an audience of, mo- of one means that we are not God. Take a look at verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Now what Paul is saying here is that because it is God who renders the ultimate verdict, why do we pass judgment on other people? Why do we rate other people? 
Now, this, is, this doesn't mean that we can never pass judgment, but what it does mean here is that we don't know the full picture. Do we really know the hidden intentions and motivations of the heart? And this is what the Apostle Paul says in verse 5. He says, God is the one who will disclose the full purposes of the heart. In other words, while we might know a little bit about an individual, maybe some, maybe a lot, we don't know the full picture. Fidelity to an audience of one means that we are not God. We're not the Holy Spirit. We don't know the intentions and purposes of the heart of an individual. And I don't know about you, but this verse challenges me because I am the biggest naysayer. Okay, I think you guys probably all know that. But I've mentioned this to you guys before, but I'm, I'm not usually like a half glass full kind of guy. I'm usually like a half glass empty kind of a guy. Megan is definitely the optimist in our relationship. I'm the pessimist. And this verse challenges me because even if people are acting whack, I don't know the full picture of a person's heart and motivations. And this passage serves to remind us that we can't. We don't know the full story. So stop psychoanalyzing people. We are not the Holy Spirit. Stop trying to be. And you know what's interesting? What the Apostle Paul says at the end of verse 5. He says that then each one will receive his commendation from God. And I think some of us will be surprised at the kind of people who will be in heaven. All the people that we thought would receive blame from God will receive praise. And for some of us, we are going to be shocked at the kind of people who will not receive praise from God, but blame. Now, what does this mean? It means that we must take care to make sure that we are not stricter than God, where God allows freedom. What fidelity to an audience of one means, that we seek to be patient and gracious and charitable charitable always, but especially when we don't know everything. But another thing I want to point out is that when we are focused on others, it, it distracts us from our true faithfulness and calling. It distracts us from our true faithfulness and calling. I want you guys to take a look at the third point. We follow Jesus. Fidelity to an audience of one means that we follow Jesus. I want you guys to turn to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. This is what the Apostle John says in chapter 21. I want you guys to take a look at verses 18 to 22. 18 to 22. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. For some of you, your discipleship to Jesus will come at a great cost, like Peter. Church history tells us that the Apostle Peter eventually died on a cross upside down, crucified, upside down. So I think we can understand Peter's question here a little bit. What about him? What about this other person? What about my siblings? What about the person sitting next to me? You know what Jesus says? What about him or her? 
If it is my prerogative for this person to serve me at school or this other person to serve me at home or this other person to serve me elsewhere, that is none of your business. The context and external circumstances of different people in your life will be different. You are different. But the call for you remains the same. You follow me. And this is what Jesus says to every one of you. All of you are different. All of you have been given different abilities, gifts, roles, unique qualities. Not all will be the same. All of you come from different backgrounds, different experiences. All of you have also been given specific trials and sufferings. If it is God's will for you to go to Harvard and another to El Camino, what is that to you? You follow Jesus. If it is God's will that you have two friends and another has 500 friends, what is that to you? You follow me. If it is God's will that you live in a small apartment and another lives in a huge mansion, mansion, what is that to you? You follow me. If it is God's will that you, li- that you are less gifted while another is more gifted, what is that to you? The call for you remains the same. You follow Jesus. The call to follow Jesus is the same for all of you. We live faithfully to Jesus wherever we are because we have already the approval that we need. And many of us, I think, have gotten the order wrong. We live faithfully in order to receive the approval of others, or to, get, to get the attention of others. Oh, this person is faithful. Trust him. But what Paul reminds us is that in a life of integrity, we live faithfully precisely because God has already given us the ultimate verdict through Jesus. You are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. A people centered on Messiah live for the audience of one and one only. Let's pray together. God, that is our simple desire, that we live for no one. Our friends, as, 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 as great as they are, gifts even from you, that we would not idolize our friends, nor would we think that we in and of ourselves are good enough but that we would be comforted and find refuge in the verdict that you have already spoken over us, that we are righteous in Jesus. I pray for these high schoolers here that they would live out of that, that out of the verdict that they have already received from you, that they would live, live lives of faithfulness, lives to please you. God, we thank you. We love you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah.